Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. James Gandry runs one of New York's great cultural institutions, the Manhattan School of Music. But he spent years as a working musician. Throughout the 80s, he sang tenor in ensembles large and small, and solo where he could. You're listening to a recital he gave in 1984. This is Franz Liszt's Pace Non Trovo. In 1993, he even auditioned successfully to be a backup singer in the Pet Shop Boys' number one hit, Go West. These days, it's a fitting anthem for the Manhattan School of Music's changing student body. We have more applications now than we ever have in our entire history. But the change has been that it's more and more international students from Asia filling those spaces. Why do you think that is? Um, I think the reason is is because those cultures have a very strong educational program from elementary school on, and they have a commitment to it. And I think what happened in North America is that there's less and less education at a lower level And so you have fewer and fewer people who are then going to take it seriously because they didn't have the early training. They're not exposed to it. Right. You believe that it's the same in Europe as well as what's happening here, that they're slowly eroding that? Yeah. When I talk to my colleagues there, the the heads of of the major independent conservatories in Europe, the same thing is happening. It's just just delayed, maybe 10, 15, 20 years from what we were. Do you see a future in which you just move the school to Beijing? Why make all them come all the way over here when most of them are there? I— I don't. Who knows what the future is going to hold? But I, I don't because there's, there's something else that's happened that's countered the lack of education in public schools a bit, which is that community music schools have gotten better and better, and they have grown in size, and they have actually filled a lot of the gap, and in some ways done it better than public schools would have done it because they're, they're focused solely on music. So you have places like the Merritt Music School in Chicago, which produced the McGill Brothers, and in New York... There's the Harlem School for the Arts and the Settlement School in, in, the, in the village. Those places have all branched out and gotten larger and done a better job than they had in the past, in part to make up for what's happening in the public school system. I'm assuming schools, not just Manhattan School of Music, but other famous schools like Juilliard and Manus, I'm sure they all have some differentiation in their approaches. But—, but so there's not an academic program while they're there, or there is? Oh, so I would say, you know, at a, at a normal uh, university or college, a kid goes to school for maybe 15 hours a week of class. And the rest of their time is up to them to study, to join clubs, to do volunteer work, Explore whatever. Themselves. Right. <laughs> Where I think at a conservatory, what you find is that the kids are so, first of all, they're so driven because they're clear what they want, at least at this point in their lives. And secondarily, the curriculum is probably somewhere around 25 to 30 hours of classroom. An academic curriculum. Right. Um, We're accredited by Middle States Association, which is the same crediting agency that accredits Columbia University. 
And so we have to provide, we, we, on the undergraduate level, we, we offer a bachelor of music degree and master of music degree at the graduate level and a doctor of musical arts. So in those programs, you are probably in class 25 to 30 hours a week as opposed to a 15-hour. Then you've got all the practice and all the rehearsals and everything else. So, a, for instance, a voice major at a school like mine would take voice lessons, obviously, might take choir, things that you would expect. And then they would also take French diction, Italian diction, German diction, English diction. They'll take music theory for two years. They'll take music history. They have to also take a humanities core as well. So every semester... That no science in math. No science in math at, at, our, at my institution. How kind and of most you? conservatories don't. Right. When they come to your school, is there an audition? There must be an audition right. process. So each year, the first week of March, uh, Manus College of Music, ourselves, and Juilliard hold our auditions the same week. So students that are coming, wanting to come to New York City can, New York. can come and do all of us at one time. And so we have over 2,000 students audition the first week in March every year for about 400 spaces. Now, the 2,000... 400 between you or at your school? In, at my school. Right. And, but before that, there's a pre-screening audition. So we actually do a... a, a, a primary screening, which students send in recordings, and then they um, are either accepted to go to the live audition or not. Oh, so there's, a pre so there's another 800 or so before the 2,000 that are screened out, that we just say there's no way that they're going to make the audition. Is it safe to assume that they're all good if they're applying to you? Um, I would say most are good, but there's a few that go in there every year, I think, being naive right. uh, and not knowing the level at all. Really? To think that you didn't really know what you were getting into when you sent your tape into Juilliard seems absurd to me. Well, I think, again, most, the vast majority do, but there are always a few that, you know, they, they, they've been told all their lives that they're fabulous and, right. you know, they don't know. They're from, I don't know, yeah. Wichita, Kansas, and they don't, and no one there has told them, dear, you don't really have it. Yeah, all their finger paintings are Picassos. Exactly. Um, when the student body arrives in the, the incoming class, I would imagine uh, not everybody makes it. Is there some uh, attrition after the first year? Yeah, the attrition, uh, every year there's a bit of attrition. The first year is maybe 7 8% of the students don't come back. And when they don't, why? They were the best in their hometown. And now they're with a bunch of other people who are the best in their hometown. Yeah. And suddenly they're not sitting in the, in the principal seat of the orchestra. They're sitting at the back of a section or something. And I think they realize, oh, this is going to be harder than I thought. Talent alone isn't going to do it. I actually have to work really hard. So going from college to the NFL. Right. I would imagine some cultural uh, conditions as well where they come. They're, they're not New Yorkers. They don't want to live in New York. Is there some of that? There's a, little, there's a little bit of that, but I think that actually most of the kids who come to New York really want to be here because New York's not a place that you feel lukewarm about. New York is a place that you either love or you really don't want. Or you want to get out. You want to get out. And I think so. I think most of the students, that's not why they leave. You think about young people going to school. I had some pretty intense conversations with the staff at one or two schools, and, and they described to me privately um, you know, some of the statistics drug overdoses, and sexual assault. Mm -hmm. And I would always imagine that the discipline that was part of the uh, classical repertoire, you have a minimum if, if none of that, correct? Yeah, I think compared to most other institutions, we have very little. But we have our own. Every, right. every institution Some people does. come and they're, and they're young. They're very young. And they're they're 18 years old and they're do. in New York. Right. And they're away from their parents for the first time. We certainly have some of that, but it's not nearly what my colleagues at more traditional institutions tell me about. Now, uh, you're from Sheboygan. 
I am. And what did your dad do for a living? My father was a pattern maker in a furniture company, which was he made the first chair if when a, when a chair was designed. He would take it from the designer, make the first chair, and make the patterns that would then be used on the assembly line to mass produce it. Uh-huh. And your mom, did she work? She worked in the home until she was in her 50s, and then she decided she was going to break out of my father's uh, a stricture of never working outside the house because he was the breadwinner. Um, and she got a job at, at a grocery store as a checkout clerk. And she did that until she, she was never was, happier. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't. She stopped working when she was 78 years old, when she said she just couldn't stand that long for that many hours any yeah. longer. Well, my mother, who had six children and was home in a very kind of suffocatingly traditional, how many kids in your family? And there were five Oh my God. Three biological, two adopted, and then my parents had foster children. So we had about 10 foster children coming in and out of the house where, when where I was growing you? up. I'm number three of the biological. Right. What was music in the family when you were a child? None, none of my parents are musical. Um, so I got my start through public education. So in fourth grade, we got to uh, choose an instrument if we wanted to. And I started playing the trumpet. And then I switched to French horn later. I wasn't a very good trumpet player, French horn player. And then in 10th grade, when I went to high school, my best friend said to me, let's join the choir. And I said, no, 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 I'm not going to join the choir. Thank you very much. We're not going to do that. He kept being persistent. So we did. And I immediately was placed in the, at that time, the top choir, because there were several, it was quite a robust music program back then in the dark ages. And I was also put in this very, very small choir that was only 16 people. So immediately, I started singing and being very successful at that. And that's when I decided I was going to go into music. Um, I had first wanted to be a minister. Then I wanted to be a social worker. Mm -hmm. Then I wanted to be a teacher. There's a pattern in there. Mm -hmm. Then I went to college and studied music and decided I was going to be a performer. And then later, when I got through uh, my bachelor's and master's degree uh, and moved to New York, I realized that I liked education and I wanted education transformed my life because I came from a working class family. And I thought there would be nothing better than to combine music and my love for higher education and help transform other people's lives. Well, you went to uh, Lawrence University uh-huh. in Appleton. Correct. Mari Taniguchi right. was your voice coach. Wow. And uh, uh, well, we do a little research. <laughs> yeah, I should say. What made Mari Taniguchi so effective for you? Well, she was both effective and frightening. Um, she was about five feet tall. She was somebody that everyone revered and feared. Uh, she could reduce you to rubble in two seconds. And was and she an emigre or she was from America? She was born in California. Right. Her parents were from Japan. Right. Okay. Um, she she taught me about excellence, and she taught me. She was probably one of the best musicians I ever met. She wasn't a very good voice teacher, actually, mm-hmm. um, but she was a great musician, and she really taught me that every single nuance and every millisecond counts and matters. And that I think is something that is rare in society now. That attention to detail, that attention to being as perfect as you can be. You said she wasn't a very good voice teacher, but she was a great musician. How do you distinguish the two? Being a great voice teacher is how they teach you actually the technique of singing to actually produce a sound better and better every time. I got better, but I didn't get better, I think, in the ways that I should have. If My next teacher at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music, 
for my master's degree was someone who uh, instilled in me a sense of pride in myself and confidence in myself because because Mari Taniguchi had sort of reduced that a bit because of she was so demanding and in kind of a punitive way. My next teacher was just terrific. He just built me up, you know, personally. Was your family supportive of you doing this kind of work? Yeah, they were supportive. I think in part because they didn't they didn't really know much about education. <laughs> so, so what was great about that was they just said we want you to be happy. Mm. And the great thing about my parents always was that if I had been a truck driver or I'd be a president of a conservatory, it wouldn't have mattered to them as long as I was a good person and I worked hard and I did my best. It's always interesting when you have parents who say they want you to be happy and they mean it. Yes. <laughs> was it at Appleton or San Francisco that uh, uh, William Sloan Coffin spoke on the campus? It was first semester of my freshman year. In Lawrence? Yes. And uh, was political activism something that was roiling for you when you were going to school? I, th- I th- it was beginning to boil. I had I had been a, a nuclear power sort of activist when I was in high school. They were trying to build a nuclear power plant near my home, my hometown. And, and did they? No. Right. Well, they had several already along the along Lake Michigan, but they were kind of trying to build another one. And I was working and I was doing some protests here or there to stop. And not anti nuclear weaponry, anti utility. Correct. That's what I've worked in for about twenty five right. years. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And so when I went to college and I saw when I heard William Sound Coffin, he was talking about nuclear proliferation in, as a war. And I had never been to a public lecture before. And I went because I they said it was good for me, and so I went because the authorities at the school said it was good for me, so I went. And I loved it. I couldn't I, – I thought, this is what college is about. I can learn all these things and I can get exposed to these incredible, inspiring people. He really was important in my education because it was so early on. And then later when I lived in New York and I saw him walking down the street near Riverside Church – uh, which is where he spent many years, mm-hmm. as you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I went up to him and I said, "I heard you at, and you really, mm-hmm. you know, thank you so much for that yeah. great, you know." Were, were your parents? Were either or both of your parents liberal or vaguely liberal people, or no? No, I would say my parents were on the conservative side, although they were independents. They would vote. They would always say they voted for the person. Right. Um, my mother, however, in her later years, has become a Democrat. And is very much um, kind of hard not to these days. She was very happy when Governor Walker was defeated. She was very unhappy when Hillary didn't win. And I think that came out because when I, um, I think when I came out of the closet, she started changing her views, and she realized that her child was not being protected by society fairly. And right, her and child so, wasn't being treated fairly. And she was. Uh, and that changed a lot of her views. And um, she's just the most incredible person you could ever meet. And uh, we Supportive. go back. Yeah, when we go back to my hometown, my husband and I, she introduces my husband as her son-in-law. And it's very <laughs> sweet, and it's and it's important actually. Was that difficult to come out with your roots and everything, or was uh, it easy by the time you did it? Well, it was in 1979, so it was it was not easy at a place like Lawrence. Appleton is the home of um, uh, Joe McCarthy. Um, so, Perfect. <laughs> so, <laughs> but you know, I have to say that, that I didn't have any uh, uh, overt problems among the faculty or the administration. There were some student things that I endured, but um, and then when I went to San Francisco, I didn't know what Sa- <laughs> I didn't know what San Francisco kind of the was opposite of Appleton. when I moved there. 
But I found out very quickly. A lot more oxygen there for you in San Francisco. (laughs) A a little bit. Than in Sheboygan. Uh, For you, what was the joy of singing? Well, I love, I have to say, I love being on stage. Uh Um, I remember when I was a student training and one of the opera directors was saying to the group, now you've got to make sure you get in the light, get in the light. Jim never is out of the light. (laughs) I just... Don't worry about Jim. I I naturally went to wherever the spotlight was, right? (laughs) So I I love that part of it. I also love the the magnificent, uh, magnificence of the music. Um, You know, to be performing with a great orchestra in a great hall, like I've performed with the New York Philharmonic maybe 80, 100 times. In a chorus and And, solo? Yeah, in the New York Choral Artists back in the 90s and the 80s. Joe, what's his name? Joe Flummerfeld. Flummerfeld, yeah. I always say his name on the the, the radio. Yeah. The New York Choral Artists, Joe Flummerfeld, director, I'd say. Correct. So you perform with them? Yes, a a lot. Under Meta and Mazur mostly, but also with Sir Colin Davis and Bernstein and other guest conductors as well. I mean, to work with Bernstein was, I, we did Mahler second. Of course, Mahler was the thing that he was particularly noted for. Um, and it was a year before he died, and it was four performances. And he never looked, he never had a score in front of him, and he's getting up there in age, and obviously he was relatively close to death. Uh, but the amount of energy and inspiration that he gave from the podium was, I'll never forget it. Then there's a physical part of singing. It's just viscerally feels good. When it's on, you just can't imagine anything feeling better than that. Especially with a symphony. Yeah. Granted, this was not a philharmonic, but I was on the stage with Gemignani with a big orchestra, like an 80-piece orchestra or 90. And when they fired up Bally High and all those Mm -hmm. classical, Mm -hmm. they did a medley. You felt the chill go up your spine to hear all those people play that music five feet behind you. There's nothing like a live orchestra, and there's nothing like an orchestra of a size, because Broadway, the orchestras get smaller and smaller. They're mic'd, and so it masks a little bit of how small they are, but it's just not the same as an acoustic orchestra that's huge. South Pacific had a very successful run. I guess Broadway audiences have become much more generous in terms of and have lowered their expectation about that sound quality because the music, it did sound a little thin. It was only like a, I don't know what it was, like, I don't know, 25, Mm -hmm. 24, like such a difference. Now, to get back to, and for our listeners, we mentioned that MSM, I'm I'm referring to the Manhattan School of Music. So when does MSM begin for you? You start teaching there when? Well, I didn't teach there in the beginning. I moved to New York a day after Christmas, 1984, solely because I wanted to study with a wonderful, wonderful teacher who taught me really how to sing, Marlena Mollis. And she is a teacher of people like Susan Graham and Tatiana Troyanis and a whole bevy of people who've sung at the Met. Um, She taught at Manhattan School of Music at the time. She now teaches at Manhattan School of Music, Juilliard and Curtis. So I went there because I wanted to study with her and also because I needed to defer my student loans. So I did that. And after a semester, I needed to find a job because I was running out of money, mm-hmm. and I did have to pay my rent. Mm-hmm. So, What part of town were you living in? I was living in Hell's Kitchen, 47th and 8th, in 1985. Back, back when that was the place to live to get a cheap apartment. Right. No longer. Uh, <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> it's as expensive as everywhere else there. Yeah. And then, um, so I got a job as an administrative assistant in the summer school office. And then four months later, I started working in the admission office as assistant director. And then I became the director of career planning, and then I became the director of admission. So so during that early run, you're talking about you got the bug, you liked it? I did, and I realized then— Beyond liking a steady paycheck, you liked the institution? I I realized that not only the institution was great, but this is what I really wanted to do. This was actually giving me more 
fuel for my soul over a daily in a daily basis than what being a singer was and it was but i but the great thing was i was able to continue to sing singing in two groups for the most part the new york choral artists with the new york philharmonic and a few other visiting orchestras and then another group in the village called voices of ascension so i had what i thought was the perfect combination of being a, a professional musician and yet doing full-time what i wanted to do well interesting when you find a job and you're a performer it's, it's i think it's the same for all performers regardless of whether you're singing uh, classical repertoire or you're acting or playing an instrument or what have you or doing comedy, I don't know, uh, that when you find that job, it's the money gig, that's the paycheck gig, you stumble on one that you actually like and, and, and it's the birth of a career. I, I agree and I can't imagine doing anything better with my life. You're listening to Manhattan's School of Music President James Gandry from his days as a tenor, making ends meet from gig to gig. He's here in the choir, singing Porgy and Bass with the New York Philharmonic under the incomparable Zubin Mehta. Another leader of the New York classical music scene is former New York Philharmonic director Zarin Mehta. Yes, that's Zubin's brother. It wasn't easy, but I got Zarin on the record about his favorite composers. Oh, Bach. You like Bach. I mean, it sounds pretty trite, but... No. Schubert, People I love... People want to hear this. Schubert, I love Schubert. Schubert's songs, Who's Schubert someone quartet. you're indifferent to? <laughs> you haven't got enough time. I don't know. <laughs> Here, Zarin made his other strong opinions in our archive at heresthething.org. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. I'm back with the president of the Manhattan School of Music, James Gandry. You're listening to his very first recording as a professional singer in John Adams' Harmonium with the San Francisco Symphony, recorded in 1984. Gandry has ultimate responsibility for the hiring and firing of the school's 250 full and part-time teachers who spend every day with students in classrooms and one-on-one. -on -one. It's a relationship that is very intimate, and I don't mean that in any inappropriate way, <laughs> particularly in voice, because unlike other instruments where you can, a teacher can actually show the student, hold your fingers this way, hold your arm this way, put the violin under your chin this way, um, raise your elbows this way for a pianist or something. You can only do that really through imagery and through feel with the voice because you can't see the voice, you can't manipulate the voice. Um, so I think that half of the half of the success of any voice teacher student relationship is a personal one. The other half is a technical one and knowing what you're saying and 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 being able to translate imagery to doing something that actually works. 
for the student. And, and, and each student is different because each body is different also. So resonances are slightly different for everybody. So the, the intuition that a great teacher has to know how to change the approach that they do to technical, uh, the technical work that the, the student, the teacher are doing is what I think um, delineates between a great teacher and an okay teacher and just a bad teacher that just doesn't really know how to teach at all and shouldn't be teaching. Um, and also, I think, to make sure that you know how to guide the student to put themselves out there again and to risk. Um, because I think, you know, being on stage, every time you perform, there is a risk. There's a risk that you're not going to do well, and you're in front of all these people. No, most people don't do their job in front of an audience. And often they want to be safe, and when they're safe, they actually don't do the right thing. When I would teach acting, that's what was like no, no job one. I'd sit there and I'd say, you've got to develop this very artificial ability. You've got to develop this very foreign capacity to not care what people think about you. And we, we care very much about what they think about this, but, and, and we do before we go on stage and we do after we come on stage. But the trick is that while you're on stage doing it, you have to risk. You have to mm -hmm. jump off the cliff and try. Anyway, do you ever teach? Do you ever teach voice there? I, I don't now, but I did back in the in the day. I taught uh, performance classes, not actual individual voice. Um, you taught them all how to find their light. <laughs> indeed. And I continued doing that when I was when I moved to Chicago in 2000. You left MSM? Yes, I did. After 15 years, I left MSM. Can I ask why? Sure. To Because I thought it was time to move on. I needed to grow in different ways than I could, I think, if I had stayed. I love the institution, but I wanted to actually lead an institution. So the opportunity to be the head right. materialized in where? where? At, I was the dean of, of Chicago College of Performing Arts at Roosevelt University. So I did that for seven and a half years. And in the last year and a half, I was asked by the then provost of the institution to be the interim dean of the College of Education as well. So I had two deanships at once. Then she left the institution, the provost, and I became the inter interim provost. Provost is sort of the dean of the deans. It's the chief academic officer, and all the deans of the colleges report to the provost. So I had the dean of pharmacy and the dean of business and the dean of education. This is what you wanted? <laughs> um, I wanted it because I thought that I could be a president. Sounds to me like you're just power mad, Jim. You're power mad. No. Uh, transforming people's lives and making a difference in them is what I get off on. So I realized more and more that unless you're at the very top role, you can't change an institution. You can have an effect in a certain number of people's lives, but when you're the president, you affect significant But change. I'm assuming that as you climb this ladder administratively at these fine institutions, does the performance and the part of you that's a singer get squeezed out more and more Completely. the more you climb the ladder? Almost everyone does. And whether you're a historian or you're a physicist or whatever, when you climb that ladder, you stop doing your, your, the other work Plain that you do. Yeah. Because you just can't any longer. It just takes up too much time. a big job, yeah. So you were there for seven and a half years, and what entices you to come back? So after my seven and a half years as dean and then five and a half years as provost, I was beginning to think of looking for presidencies, and so I was. And so I, the president of Manhattan School of Music had just resigned. And so someone had said to me, you know, can I nominate you? And I said, sure, but there, I mean, Manhattan School of Music is not going to hire me. Why, you, why, why do you say that? Because I have an idea, which is, that, is it the idea that they knew you when you were like junior? You were in the lower ranks, and they just didn't have the ability to see you. And that's what I thought. Right. And I'm sure there was part of that during the process of, of them. I'm sure that was a discussion they had. 
But in the end, I was offered the job, and I was thrilled to death to be coming back to a place where I had started as an administrative assistant at one time uh, to become the ninth president of the school, following some people who were pretty impressive. Did much change, and did much change at Manhattan since you were gone? One of the things about conservatories is that conservative is in their name. Um, higher education in general, although politically fairly liberal, is in their own curriculum and their programs fairly conservative. Um, so conservatories have a hard time changing. So right now we're in the middle of a you know, planning process, and one of the things we're going to be talking about is how should we change and how do we continue to hold on to the traditions, which are important, at the same time as looking forward to a, a, a new world that we need to prepare our students for. So um, there was a lot that was very similar. I think what, what the institution had always done a really great job at was the actual education of the students. What institutions like mine have neglected are the facilities, the promotion of the institution. I'm assuming that 25, 30 years ago, schools like Manhattan School of Music didn't have to do much promotion. People who were disposed toward that, they, they knew who you were, and they were like, like Harvard. They were headed in your direction. There was a lot of that. There was also um, a sense that doing that kind of promotion maybe was... Mm, Vulgar. Yes. Right. And so you just didn't do it because right. those of us do, at this level right. don't do It's like do lawyers that advertising right? yeah, the old days. So I think that's long gone, thank right. goodness. Um, but when I arrived, there was very little social media going on, almost none. Um, we were not promoting ourselves very much, and we were living off our reputation, which was a great reputation, and thank God it is so good, so the institution kept going. But now I think we have a different presence. You do start uh, adding to that din, but the good news is you know, the number of followers on Twitter and Facebook, et cetera, have been exponentially growing for us. So that's been uh, – Terrific, and our numbers are this year. Our application numbers are up again. What percentage, uh, to the extent you can say, are on some kind of financial aid? About two thirds are on institutional financial aid, meaning in, in money that we give them. Uh, there's another group, another percentage. I'm not exactly sure that also receives outside. government aid and outside aid, but not necessarily from us. You have 400 incoming per year. Correct, because the, the the most conservatories have a disproportionate number of graduate students. A lot of graduate students go to universities for their undergraduate education, and then they come to conservatories for their graduate program. So you'll find either 50-50 or 60-40 kinds of balances at most conservatories, graduate to undergraduate. So that's why the, there's 400 coming in every year, because we're replacing them every two years, as opposed to four-year undergraduate program. And entering freshman classes, how many of the 400? About 150. So about 150. And what's the housing imperative for them in an, in an institution in Manhattan? So we have, a, we have a residence hall where my husband and I live, actually. Right. Um, we have a slightly better dorm room than they do. <laughs> where is that? It's at the school. So it's at 120, 122nd and Claremont Avenue, right. which is right across from Riverside Church. Sure. About half of our student body lives in the residence hall, and freshmen and sophomores are required to live there. Right. When I went to that commencement with Long Long, where was it held again? What was that Riverside space? Church. Can I tell you something? It was absolutely, it was, so, I mean, I had tears streaming down my face. We were up on that altar, and I'm there with Long Long, uh, who I worship. That commencement, oh my God, that's the advertisement for your school right there. It's, you should tape that and put it online. We do now live stream it, actually, and have it. Um, every year when I have 
people like yourself getting honorary doctorates, and I say to them what it's going to be like, and you know, I explain it to them, and they, I, they understand it, but when they actually experience it, they just. <sighs> I remember Bibi Newirth when we gave her an honorary doctorate, and she's now on our board of trustees. Also, I told her, I said, "You're going to be overwhelmed in a way that you've never." been overwhelmed, no matter all the great things you've done in front of the lights and everything. This is going to be one of the big moments. And she, after it was over, she said, Jim, you were absolutely right. That was one of the greatest things in my life to get that honorary doctorate and to be there in that grandeur of that whole thing and to see the kids. And the, the whole thing is, it's, it's everyone who knows me well knows there are two days that are my favorite days of the year, which is uh, the day that move-in day. When the kids come with their families and they've got their cars and they're unloading their stuff and they are full of energy and excitement and a little bit of fear about this journey they're about to take. And then it's the last day, which is commencement, which is the same thing. They're excited and they're also fearful the next step they're going to take. They don't know what it's going to be like. Do you teach conducting as well? Yes, we do. And, and you know, being a conductor is a very, very hard job. Now, why do you, now tell me why. Well, first of all, just technically, it's it's difficult because you have to make sure that you know how to guide an orchestra so that every single person understands the slightest thing that happens on the tip of your baton. But also, it's leadership without bludgeoning. Often, I mean, some conductors, certainly old time oh, conductors, less delicate than um, you know, George Zell, etc., were known as to be pretty pretty hard taskmasters. That yeah. doesn't really work so much anymore. Yeah. But to be able to inspire a group of people to follow you. And also at the same time demanding that they do um, and having a certain rapport with the audience. All of that together. I mean, I've watched Leonard Slatkin uh, teach because he's on our board also. And he right. now teaches. He takes two fellows from our conducting program and works with them every year, has them conduct. Here in St. Louis. Um, here. And then he goes until this year when he stepped down from Detroit. Detroit. He would take them to the Detroit Symphony and give them a full rehearsal with the Detroit Symphony on the same repertoire that they had conducted with our students. So he takes half the concert. They take the other half of the concert. And just watching him work with really talented young people, telling them, do you see what you didn't do right there? If you had just done this slightly different thing with your wrist, they would have followed. But what you did was unclear. Really? Those nuances. And, and, and you can't see anything consistent between any of them. No. I mean, Gergiev looks like he's trying to, uh, you know, sweep the smoke away from a, from a pan that's on fire in a kitchen. That remember, hand thing he does. I remember the two conductors that I, would, that I worked with the most, which was Zubin Mehta and Kurt Mazur at the New York Philharmonic. And they could not have been more different conductors. I mean, they are... Uh, worlds apart. Um, uh, Zubin's uh, stick technique is as good as any I ever worked with. I mean, you could follow that baton without any problem, anytime, during any problem of any sort. He was amazing. He was also incredibly effusive in a very generous kind of way. Um, and I think Mazur was chillier. He, he was he was harder. His stick technique wasn't very good in part because he had a you know a bit of a disability with his right arm. But it was always easy to follow him because what he did was he learned how to convey what he wanted through his face and his body. So he made up for what he was lacking with his right arm. And what goes into the choice between stick no stick? Gergi have no stick. Oh really? I d yeah. didn't remember that. But there's very few conductors who don't use a stick. Sometimes the conductors will mostly use a stick and then put it down for certain passages, usually in very subtle, soft passages. I don't find it necessary. It's certainly easier with a stick. 
um, I think you have to look if you're if you're a uh, performer, you have to watch far more closely if you don't have a stick. Mm-hmm. I got two more questions for you. Uh, your husband, mm-hmm. and what kind of work does he do? He's a psychotherapist. Oh my goodness! <laughs> Former lawyer turns right. psychotherapist. Yeah, that um, comes in handy, or it's an ongoing pain in the ass to have someone. No, who's... it's not at all. Um, people he meets, they ask him, "You know, are you analyzing me?" He says, "You're not paying me, so no, I'm not." No, you know, and the same thing he probably would say for me. But when you know, when you're home, you're just you're just a couple like anybody else. Was he a classical music aficionado when he met you? I mean, he he grew up playing piano, so he knew about classical okay, music. Cool. He wasn't going to the symphony or the opera on a regular basis, although he was going. And now we go, of course, a lot. He loves and, it. Oh, and he's got great ears. He can, he can, especially with singers, he will start to explain why he thinks a singer was good or bad, and then I will tell him the technical reasons why what he's saying is correct. And the other question I have is, people, when they finish the program, where do most of them end up? Mm-hmm. The vast majority of our, our graduates have what would be called portfolio careers. Um, and what I mean by that is that they might play in a regional symphony orchestra. They'll teach privately or at a college, um, and they might you know, be an administrator at a nonprofit. And so they put together a, this portfolio career of somewhat freelancing, but they're steady. And that has been true forever. I remember hearing uh, the now former president of Juilliard give a talk, oh, I don't know, 30 years ago maybe, Joe Polizzi. And he said uh, of Juilliard graduates, 50% of the graduates said their primary source of income was teaching, not performing. And I think that's been true forever, and I don't think that's going to change. Ensembles, the major ensembles, and not just confining ourselves to the big five, as they used to say, but uh, on out to L.A. and uh, and so forth and around the world, would you say that uh, a significant number of chairs have roots in Manus, MSM, and Juilliard? Oh, absolutely. A lot of graduates from New York. If you look at the seven independent conservatories of music in America, San Francisco, Cleveland, New England, Curtis, uh, and then the New York conservatories, um, you will find that the majority of people in the top 20 orchestras in America are graduates from those institutions. There's something about them, the smallness, the intensity, the quality of the faculty that I think is a hothouse for great music making. You know, we look at the New York Philharmonic, for instance, 10% of the members are, are graduates of our school about nearly 20% of the Met Orchestra is. Um, the the um, Detroit Symphony, for instance, is about more than 10% also. So you look at all these orchestras, then you add all these other institutions in there, and it's the, the vast majority of those orchestras. Cool. Well, I have never been as inspired to want to uh, aid a cause than when I was invited. It was a lovely day. I thought, why are you people giving me an award? You know what I mean? And I was so humbled. But to be there with Long Longs was one of the greats. I mean, what you guys do there, it is a miracle. It's so beautiful. And when I see these kids do what they do and grow up and change, and and then when I get to go to the Met or to go to the New York Philharmonic and see them and they were students and now they're on that stage, it's just... I mean, this year alone, for instance, there are more than 20 of our grads are, are at the Metropolitan Opera. And I try to go to every performance of, of, of all, the, all the alumni performances. I mean, my pride, it's like this incredible father pride that one has. This, too, is James Gandry. 
Last year, to celebrate the renovation of the school's main concert hall, Jim, the working tenor, re-emerged. He cleared his president's schedule to rehearse Beethoven's choral fantasy. The result is this performance, alongside dozens of current and former Manhattan School students and faculty. I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's the Thing is a production of WNYC Studios.